Welcome to the Avance Podcast. I'm Nick. I'm Dan. And, and we're broadcasting from our uh, bomb shelter. Yeah. Wow. There's nothing to show here, Dan. I see that. <laughs> Thanks, screen. Anyway, there's our black background. Yeah. Uh, I'm still building this Of studio. all the malfunctions we could have, that'll work. Yeah, that'll work. We I'm did, still building did have the studio. Our yeah, okay. Yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> anyway. So. Yeah. Oh, we've got a good guest this week, and I was start, figured I would start this week off with our, of course, Carter Automotive Group Tip of the Week, which has nothing to do with our guest, but I thought it was a fun fact. <laughs> okay. All right. So, back in 89, Corvette brought ZR1 out. Okay. C4ZR1, right? Everybody You're on a the theme lately. I am. Okay. Yeah. Well, we saw that Corvette downstairs. Yeah. I was yeah. on mine the other day. And that was a pretty weird car in the sense that when everybody thinks of Corvettes, they think old push rods and basic configurations. But the 89 had a really weird motor in it, especially for Chevy. Not by anybody else's standards, but by Chevrolet's standards because sure. push rods. Well, it had a 32-valve DOHC V8, and it was designed in partnership with Lotus. Oh. Yeah. Pretty cool stuff. Yeah. Really nice really nice engine, actually. So this is for the, just, as, just for the ZR1? Just for the ZR1. Okay. The problem is, is Lotus did a really good job designing it, and Chevy couldn't build anything without push rods, and so they couldn't build it. <laughs> None oh. of the tooling they had and their manufacturing, it didn't work for it. So they had to contract out to have the motor made. So Lotus designed it for them, but didn't build it? Didn't build it. Okay. And Chevrolet, but it's made in USA here, Fair. designed yeah. by Lotus. Not yeah. a bad thing. Thanks, Colin Chavin. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so they went to a really unlikely supplier. Which is always a fun fact when you talk about Corvettes. People don't people don't usually remember this about this motor, and that weird supplier was Mercury Marine Mercruiser. It's a boat engine. It's a boat engine. Yeah. it's not a boat engine, of course. It was designed by Lotus for yes. the Corvette. But but it's kind of an odd odd thing people don't think about. It is but they had the tooling. The, yeah, they had the tooling to oh. build this engine. So they went to over and had Mercruiser build it. We're, okay. And Mercury Marine has nothing to do with Ford Mercury, for the record. No, yeah, <laughs> a lot of people don't know that, but they don't. So. Yeah, I knew that. I did. I actually did know that because I, I, growing up, my grandfather had all types of little engines and things like that. And they were a lot more Mercury's. Mer- Mercury's. Yeah. Mercruiser. So, yeah. yeah. Mercruiser, Evan Rude. Let's that go too. Evan Rude. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the rescuers. Anyway. Sure. Uh, anyway, yeah. So there's fun little fact tip of the week. Interesting motor. Interesting car. Great car, really. Uh, but yeah, there's your fun Carter Automotive Group tip of the week, which cool. I just thought people would find interesting. So yeah. But this week, we've got Richard Varner with us. Uh, Richard. You like motorcycles and other things in the Peterson Museum. Tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, Moto America. Yeah, one of a very cool thing. You guys kind of had had a, like a how do I say it? An eight year, nine year overnight success. <laughs> well, that's right. It's 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 going to end in about nine years here pretty soon, and we're still uh, we're still getting there. But it's yeah, it's um, you know my background is uh, grew up in Wichita, Kansas. That's where I live now. I've been around the petroleum industry all my life. Um, grew up working in the oil fields here and uh, went to school in Nebraska and Kansas and then started getting into the crude oil trading. And so Houston, Europe, the West Coast, and uh, lived on the West Coast up until about three or four years ago and started my own companies and bought and sold a few. And so along the way, uh, I've always enjoyed, I've always told people I'd, I'd buy a ticket to anything, you know, to two moving parts, you know. Just just anything mechanical has always been very interesting to me. If it's if it's a refinery or if it's a a pump or if it's a car or an airplane or boat, you know, if you like cars, you like airplanes, you like boats, right? It just it just all kind of flows together. And motorcycles are part of that. And uh, I'm like a lot of guys growing up. Um, uh, you know, my parents wouldn't let me have a motorcycle, so I spent the rest of my life getting even with them. So, so <laughs> that's kind of the way it goes. Um, 
I kind of got into it heavy about oh, 2007. I'd sold the company and uh, my wife was at the time was kind of on my butt about, you know, what are you going to do? And so I started buying old, you know, basket cases and restoring Triumphs. And that led into uh, cool. designing our own bikes, taking new Triumph motors, making uh, things like in the back here, like, uh, you know, street trackers. Even sold one to Jeff Beck. Uh, along the way and we started doing some some neat stuff uh got involved with terry cargus who's uh, the director of the museum and we started doing some things for fun with socal speed shop and then that grew into uh, a collaboration with wayne rainey who's three times world champion and then that grew into a conversation about see road racing is on the on the on the outs in the united states we ought to restore it so that led to a a conversation with Jim France at, uh, and he wouldn't sell to us and it went back and forth and finally we, we kind of found an agreement and we brought in Chuck Axlin and so we formed a partnership and now Moto America. Uh, in six months we stood, wow yeah in six months we stood it up from virtually nothing to an op, you know wheels on the track and it's been you know none of us uh, knew anything about promoting events. Uh, or putting on those types of things, and uh, but Wayne and Chuck were very conversant with how to run a race, and uh, Chuck had run uh, Kenny Roberts' operation for many years, and he'd run Coda. He was the number two guy at Coda for many years uh, when they first started, helped build the track at in Austin, and then of course Wayne is world champion. I mean, and so from that point we got we we focused on the racing. It took us a couple of years to get, kind of get the racing right, and then the business has come along behind it. And it's been a learning process for all of us, but I think now, you know, the, the, we've built this thing out, and it's, it's become kind of a force of its own. It's, it's really been fun to see. You, you had mentioned uh, briefly back there that, you, that racing was kind of dying in America, and, I, and I, I mean, I've seen that too, like when we were down in Monterey and like Laguna Seca cut back on racing because people kept moving closer and closer to the track and they didn't want to hear the noise, which doesn't make sense to me. If you're going to build a right. house next to a racetrack, you're going to hear noise. So um, can you talk about that a little bit about what happened? I mean, as far as where it went, I mean, because a lot of us like enthusiasts really want to see it. Right. Well, I, there's a number of things that go with that. I think... Um, you know, the roots of those those things have to do with the type of racing. So, if you recall, during the early 2000s, uh, NASCAR was still very big, um, and I think that's because people related to NASCAR better than they related to a lot of things, and, and that has its foundation in um, its production-based racing, or at least it was at the time, where you could you could identify the cars on the track. That was the car you drove. I drive a Pontiac, and the Pontiac just kicks ass this weekend, or a Dodge, or, or whatever. But you, yeah. you could relate to the car, you could relate to the driver, you could relate to the team. And as everything started moving towards, you know, an effort to reduce cost, started to go into spec racing. So Indy Racing League, you know, kart, you had a Chaparral, and you had a Coyote, and you had, um, you know, a, a, a Penske even at the times. But you had all these different types of cars, and people could recognize them. When that kind of went away, I think that started to decline the interest in a lot of ways because people, they couldn't relate to what was going on. The riders are getting older. The drivers are getting older. Specifically, the motorcycles, um, I think that there was an effort. DMG came up. Uh, the France family formed a group called D Daytona Motorsports Group 
and they bought all of the motorcycle racing disciplines from the AMA. And with that, they they tried to apply NASCAR uh, approaches to, to racing, uh, which I think is perfectly appropriate. I mean, you can't argue with them. They were very successful. But the, the model was kind of off because it required the, the, the tracks to uh, promote the series. And I think that's also what happened with IndyCar and a few others. The tracks were promoting the series. There's no consistency in the product. There's no consistency in the competition. So it just kind of got to be mundane, I guess is the best way to put it. And I think the, you know, a lot of contributing factors, the 2008 recession, all those things kind of just... And then don't forget in the meantime, we have a complete transition of marketing. I mean, you've gone from billboards and TV, linear TV, to you know, cutting the cord, to digital, to social media. How do you promote those things? We don't promote anything now like we did even five years ago. You know, or even three years ago, much less 15 years ago. So there's a lot of contributing factors to that. Who would have thought that w the thing that would have brought Formula One back to the to the interest of the United States was that one show, you know, Drive to Survive. Yeah. You know, but what it did was it, it formed an association with the drivers. And it formed an association with the human element that they didn't have before. And I think that's that kind of is the, the, the nexus of why... We lost those connections, and I think that's a nexus for declining. I mean, you grew up, obviously, on yeah. the motorcycles since you were a little kid. I grew up like him, where my mom said you can't have any motorcycles. <laughs> now uh, she doesn't know how many I have, uh, which is safer for me. <laughs> but you grew up with that. Like, did you watch the racing when you oh, were Oh, yeah. I had, okay. a, I had Kenny Roberts' helmet oh, okay. when, when I was younger. Mm -hmm. Like, it is matching a ride. Like, that was a thing for me. And Wayne Rainey, is, his crash is pretty uh, – even I was – it was a long time ago, but I remember that very clearly. It was, it was, it was hard. Um, yeah, actually, speaking of, let's transition with that. For A lot of people don't know who Wayne Rainey is outside of our, our show. There's going to be our motorcycle group, but a lot of people don't know. Like, he's an incredible rider, and now he's a manager. And uh, after his crash, uh, he was paralyzed. What's it like working with Wayne now in that, I mean, yeah, I have, everything. he seems to be doing very well. Yeah, I, you know, Wayne's a special guy. Um 1993, uh, he was uh, paralyzed in a in a in an accident. He was in the race for his fourth consecutive world championship. At that time, they were racing 500 cc two-stroke motorcycles, and they had a power band that was about that wide. Insane. And you barely cracked it, and you were either on or off. on or off. And these guys were riding, <laughs> yeah. and they were wicked. I mean, they were absolutely wicked. You know, you. You listen to um, uh, Rossi talk about him, and he's ridden him a couple of times. You know, and Valentino's like, I can't believe you even rode these things. But he was riding them. <laughs> Kenny Schwartz was riding them. Kevin Schwartz was riding them. And they're highly competitive. But we were dominating at that point in time. He was killed. He was not killed. He was, he was hurt horribly in, a, in an accident. He immediately, this is Wayne, he immediately got back into racing within a few months and started running a 250cc team in the world championship, uh, kind of under Kenny Roberts, but he did that for several years. I mean, he didn't miss a beat, but things started kind of catching up to him and, and it, it, it had a toll on him. So he, he laid out for 20 years and we were introduced to him uh, by Gordon McCall that runs uh, the quail, uh, quail shows. I don't know if you know Gordon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were we were building these uh, triumphs that were pretty cool, 
there were street trackers and we thought god what else can we do and so we looked at yamahas and so we built a r1 replica of a tc750 well i got wayne going cool and that got wayne going it was featured in cycle world and you know it's kind of the bike that got us all going again Wayne had laid off of anything to do with racing really directly for a while and this brought him back in well since then we've become partners and dear friends um we have differences of opinion fairly often uh, because I approach things from a different place than Wayne does. And what, we've, what I've learned about Wayne is that he is so passionate and he is such a perfectionist and, and, he, and all the attributes that made him a world champion, he brings to the table in the series. If it's to do with safety, if it's to do with competition, marketing or anything else, He's got such a sense of perfection that it's amazing. And if you think about racers in general, you know, they're, they're chasing the last thousandths of a second all the time. You, that's what you have to do to win. And that's what Rain, Wayne brings to the, our table. And it's invaluable, really, uh, because where I might be saying, hey, 90% is good enough, he's going, no, we've got to be on it. We have to be there. And... Um, I value that with Wayne and, uh, you know, his, my worst day, you know, getting up is where his best day begins. I mean, my worst day is where he starts every day. I have nothing but admiration for Wayne and nothing but love for the guy. He's, he's such an incredible person. Yeah. The only one that I like more than Wayne is his wife, Shay. So, uh, <laughs> she's, she's unbelievable, but leave it at that. But, uh, the two of them together are a formidable team and, and like I said, we have a lot of love for both of them. My other part, You've been talking about building. I can, by the way, I give a shit for my other two partners, so that's okay. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> that's good. You were talking about building bikes. Were you building these bikes just for yourself, kind of? Or were you were you actually producing these for, for certain people? No. Obviously, you have a love, and, and you, you were driven to motorcycles by your mother's hatred of motorcycles. Right. So. Well, yeah. the thing is... Um, yeah. I've always had, a, like I think I told you earlier, a passion for flat track motorcycles, and this is their style. They're they're, essential, they're just bare essence motorcycles. The original ones didn't even have brakes on them, you know. So very minimalist types of motorcycles, kind of a Cobra mentality, lightweight, high output, simple machines. And um, after I, what I did was I went back to 1970 which is where my mind stuck anyway, because that's where I was in high school. And I haven't grown up much uh, in terms of maturity since then. But uh, the idea was that, <laughs> We support that. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I started, look, you know, you, you build, you restore one bike and you go, okay, that's pretty cool. Now what, right? So I thought, 1970 yeah. is a cool year. <laughs> and so I researched and, and Triumph made eight motorcycles, models of motorcycles, 19... Um, 1970 so I, so I collected all I collect you know it's like you get out of the cereal box I collected them all from 1970 and there were two that were pretty rare one was a um, I digress a little bit but one was a, a Bonneville that was homologated into uh, flat track racing um, the AMA had always required that only 500 cc motorcycles with overhead valves could compete with the 750 basically side valve uh, Harleys at the time 1970, they relented, and they said, "Okay, you could you could run a uh, 750 overhead with a 750 uh, side valve." Okay, problem was, 
Triumph didn't make one. They didn't make a twin. So what they did was they said, uh, okay, uh, DeWarty Motors and, and uh, Johnson Motors on the West Coast with the two distributors, they went to Sonny Rout, who was a drag racer that made a kit with bigger barrels and pistons. And it would take it to 750. And they, they contracted with him. They made 206 of them to emulgate them. They took the sides off the crates, pulled the, the cylinders off, the heads off, put them on, and stamped a T on the T120R uh, number. So there's a T120RT, which is a homologation uh, model of the thing. It's pretty cool. It's only 750 uh, yeah. of Bonneville they made. And so, you know, found that one. I found a Triumph, this 1970 triple, that they only made 286 of because they couldn't sell the ones from 1969. So, you know, there's all kinds of stuff we can go into about that. But they, then what? Okay, got all eight of those. Now what? And I thought, well, you know, I've always liked the flat tracks. So I'll go find a Trackmaster frame. And I started thinking, you know, shit, you're old. Uh, kick this thing over, you know. And, and so I thought, well, you know, the new Triumph Bonnevilles look a lot. The engines look a lot like the old ones. So I started messing around with uh, Richard Pollock down in San Diego, new motorcycles. Uh, I was introduced to them by uh, Dave Edwards, who was the editor at Cycle World at the time. We started talking, and he was making street trackers out of Harleys and old um, uh, Yamaha 750s, right? And we figured out a frame, and and uh, he assembled it. And the 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 thesis was a 300-pound motorcycle, 80, 90 horsepower, and we 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 hit the numbers, and the thing was a hoot. So I thought, well, okay, let's build. So we built several variations, and the idea was, you know, we're so smart, we'll sell them. And we sold one, and we sold it to Jeff Beck. And <laughs> that's another story. So by this time, Terry Cargan had gone to the museum and was running that. And uh, Terry uh, hooked me into going on the board. And I was up there one day, and I said, let's go to lunch. And he goes, well, you might want to go to lunch with me. I said, why? He said, well, Jeff Beck's coming in. Because Jeff had, had had a bunch of uh, cars there that were keeping some hot rods. I don't know if you guys know much about Jeff Beck, but he's... He's a real hot rod guy, and he makes his own hot rod. Yeah, his own welding. It does. I mean, the guy. Yep. He's very conversant with it. And we had several of his cars that we were keeping there, and I met him. And, and Terry says, "Well, he's the motorcycle guy." And he says, "You know what? There's only one motorcycle I liked. It's called a Streetmaster." I said, "Well, that's my motorcycle. I've been on the internet, you know." He goes, "No, no, no. You can buy him." I said, "Yeah, I know. I'll sell you one. I build them. That's mine." <laughs> oh no, 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 come on. So so we built one and shipped it over to him. And I was there's a documentary on Jeff Beck you can watch on Netflix. I'm sitting there watching this one night and he's sitting in his garage and they're talking to him and shit right behind him's the motorcycle. So I'm in there taking pictures like look at this, you know. But uh that's pretty fun. So that's how we got started. It's a long story. We built a few of them and we built them basically for for my own ego, I guess if you want. And, you know, they're pretty cool. They've gotten a bunch of books and they've been on different shows. One went to the Moon Eye show in, in um, Japan. And uh, I got to know uh, Pete Shapiro's at SoCal Speed Shop from that and uh, Jimmy Shine. And, you know, the, the whole biking thing has kind of opened up a world for me that I never would have thought of before. When you grow up in Wichita, Kansas in the late 60s and 70s, 
the whole world's outside of here. It's like looking through a knot hole, you know, in a fence. The whole world's on the other side. And uh, you went to California and you meet people, and it's it's just it's just a dream come true. You know, you meet. I met Bruce Brown and I mean uh, Aldana and and Gene Romero and all these guys I read about growing up. It's it's you know, Dan Gurney and it's been a, it's been an amazing experience mm. for me. Yeah. So. It's a small world down there. We, I'm always surprised who we run into every time we're down there, just hanging out. Oh, in Monterey? Yeah. 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 Well, I heard you guys talk about... Can, can you talk about your involvement? Yeah, I've heard you guys talk about Bruce Meyer before. Sorry. You know, Bruce, if, if Bruce was in Ireland, he'd be the guy with the flute and the snakes behind him, you know, on St. Patrick's Day. He gets, more <laughs> yeah. he gets more people involved and gets more people enthusiastic about that. And if you just hang around Bruce long enough, you're going to see everything you need to know. So if you just camp out in his backyard, you'd be amazed what happens. So, yeah. Sure. Uh, talk about your involvement with Peterson. I mean, that's, that's uh, obviously, like you said, you were on the board, um, which led to some motorcycle sales, which is good. But how did you uh, originally get involved with them? Well, basically, Terry Cargus. Terry uh, and I got to be very good friends. And he got on the board, uh, was as executive director. And so he uh, put me up for it, basically, and which was an honor. And I met with Bruce. I met Bruce for the first time and David Sidoric, Bill Amundsen, and, and Peter Mullen. And at that time, I'm trying to think. I think maybe that was, there's only one other board member at the time, maybe. It was a very small operation. So I went there, and, and uh, Peter said, okay, but you have to work. Jokingly, so he asked me to be treasurer, and then Peter said, "Oh, by the way, we're going to build this new museum," and uh, so that's what happened. And Peter said, "We're going to do it," and we did it. And it's been, you know, you talk about a joy and a privilege. It's uh, that place under Terry's leadership, uh, and I think uh, the guidance. Of, you know, Bruce brings a lot of energy to the place. David Sidoric brings a lot of um, vision. And I think that uh, Peter Mullen brought a lot of audacity to make things happen. Uh, Peter stepped down two years ago, and, and uh, I went to the bathroom, and they they made me chairman. So that's that's been uh, that's, <laughs> you know poor judgment on everyone. As they should. Poor judgment. <laughs> <laughs> you guys still have the uh, F1 exhibit and the Bond exhibit there. I mean, Peterson exhibits are out of this world. I look at them online all the time. And, and that's what what what. What uh, Terry has really uncovered is that that you know all too often museums are where history goes to die. You know, you, you have an exhibit there, and yeah, it doesn't change; it stays the same. Well, P, uh, Terry's been dedicated to the idea that we have to change exhibits on a regular basis. He's developed a very great curation staff there that puts on great exhibits, and as the brand has has grown, we're able to attract people that are willing to loan their collections. So. Um, you know, the Bond group, they own most, they almost all of those vehicles. Um, a good friend of mine was Steve Hiller, whose dad uh, started Hiller Helicopter, but I walk in there and there's a Hiller Helicopter in the Portage Air right there. And we have a Cessna 182 hanging from the ceiling in there. We've got um, video exhibits with every a vehicle that was involved in the Bond, and to the point where the Bond people were coming in that are part of the foundation said, this is the best exhibit we've had. But I think, you know, that was thing was well over half a million dollars to, to curate and put together. 
but it draws people in. We get we get the museum um, admissions that we were looking for. The Formula One exhibits owned by Juan Gonzalez. That's a guy you should have on the podcast. Juan is um, one of the great guys. Yes, please. <laughs> he's, he's huge in racing. He races uh, cars himself. Uh, he was at, I think he did pretty well. He was at uh, Road America last weekend. He's raced at Sebring, um, but he, he f- sponsors parts of Formula One, uh, Arrows IndyCar, NHRA, Moto America, American Flat Track. Uh, the guy is such a racing fanatic, and he's got this great um, collection that he's been very generous to share. And it's, it's fantastic. You go there, and you can see the evolution of Formula One in front of your eyes. You know, the wing, the, the aerodynamics especially, and some of the some of the propulsion and and, and uh, suspension changes, ride heights, everything that they did in Formula One, you know, the you can see uh, what's his name, Adrian Adrian uh, Newey, his impact. It's a uh, it's an amazing uh, exhibit. Lots of video behind it, and uh, but uh, Juan is an interesting guy. He owns Mission Foods, which is uh, a worldwide operation that is the largest producer of. Um, Flatbreads and uh, tortillas, uh, along with other things. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Operations, flour. You know, he's talking to him a few weeks ago. You know, he's got mills and and the Ukraine had to shut down. He's got business in Russia still open. How do you how do you manage all that? He's he's a he's an outstanding businessman. We recently asked him on our board, but he's a very interesting person and he's very generous to races racers and racing. And um, he's a, he's a, uh, I'm very fortunate he's a friend. I mean, he's, he's a great guy. I'd love to have him on. Yeah. I mean, I think when, when most of us car guys think about the Peterson, you think about the vault. You think about the, what's oh, yeah. hidden away downstairs. But there's, there's some videos that have gotten out. I mean, you talk about absolute history, uh, some of the cars that are stored there and kept and, and, and in the care. And, I mean, have you, I'm assuming you've had a chance to, be, to wander around down there and just uh, take it all in. Oh, absolutely. I mean, every time I'm there, I just go through and see what's, what's new. I mean, the first time I went through the vault, it wasn't open to the public. And it was kind of a dingy place. And they had covers on all the cars. And I'm walking through, and I'm with Terry, and I go, what's this? And I, I pull up the cover, and, hell, it's a Tucker. I said, <laughs> that's a Tucker. He says, that's so cool. He says, no, it's not a Tucker. He says, it's the first Tucker. Oh, okay, well, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. We, we walk to the next day, pick it up, it's like, well, that's a 600 SEL uh, uh, limousine, right? He goes, that was Saddam Hussein's limousine. Oh, okay, but that Saddam Hussein's limousine. Yeah, you, you walk, you walk. It's, <laughs> it's just like that. You know, this was the car in Greece, or this was, this was uh, uh, Bobby Rahal's winning car, or this was all these different things. It's amazing what's down there, and the, the what we've determined is we can put the show on upstairs. You know, and that's a great thing to do, and people like to see it. And they like to see curated exhibits. That's a wonderful thing, but if you can expose them to the, the vault, it 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 really brings back memories for a lot of people. That was the car I was in. You go back to the thing with racing. That's the car I was in. My family had one of those. That my buddy had one of those. My buddy had a hot rod just like that, you know. And 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 you see generations going through there. It's a lot of fun. It's a great place, um, you know. And it's and it's it's been a real uh, draw for us at the museum too. 
Now, you've done some racing in cars, too. You're not just a bike guy. You've got some uh, BMWs, right? And you've done some racing in those? Uh, I've done some. I started, uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty, I used to play football in college, and I'm kind of a big guy. And So what I've been trying to do as I get older is find a car that's light enough with enough power that I can still stay competitive with, right? So I started off in MGs uh, uh, in a old 60, well, you said you had a, I think he had a, uh, a Triumph Force on. I had a, uh, in high school, I had an MGB yeah. GT. And um, uh, okay. I over for a while, and then I got a, started racing an MG uh, Roadster. And, you know, wasn't doing it, still not doing that well in racing, but I enjoyed the hell out of it. And then I found an MGB GT uh, V8, which they built for the early 70s. They had a Rover V8, was their. It's the last iteration of a, of a GT. And that thing, golly, it makes about 300 horsepower and it's about 1,900 pounds. So, But it's a handful. It's a little... There you go. And, wow. and with me in it, we had to cut a hole in the floorboard and lower the seat and put a... put a. You know, they talked about the gurney bubble on the, on the GT. <laughs> yeah, yeah. On the GT, yeah. I've got a partner yeah. butt on mine. So, I mean... That's cool. Down. But that car's a lot of fun. And then... I started looking for something more fun, and uh, I'd, I'd grown up, one of my favorite cars growing up was a 3-liter, the CS series, uh, the first E9 coupe that BMW made. They had one down the street, and I, I'd drive by there all the time at the dealership, and golly, it was good looking. And while I lived in London for a while, I had one that was bright green, uh, automatic, and liked it. It had velour seats. I mean, in Europe for a while, they had cut velour seats on cars yeah and lord help you if you ever try to sit in one with a pair of corduroys on because your back pocket is around the front but just, just hold on you know? <laughs> but that was your came back that's funny you had a bunch of different bmws and different things and so i found an e9 and a, a friend in, in costa mesa at the op, my office and shop i have there so we restored it and put a S52 motor in it and a five-speed behind it. And I, it made a hot rod out of it for the street. And that's what I drive when I'm in California most every day. I thought, God, this is fun. So I started looking around for a CSL to, to race. And uh, Adam Carolla's came up for sale. So it was on Bring a Trailer. There you so, go. So I'm bidding on it, you know. And, and uh, uh, Adam, had he bought it from um, Cubby. Oh, hell, uh, I'm trying to think of the guy's name. His dad was a uh, crab, Cubby Crab, Cuffy Crab, Cuffy Crab, Cubby Crab or something. His dad was Buster Crab, who was the first Tarzan in the movies. And this guy had been a, an actor, oh. actor or something. And the car had been built in Europe and, and had a you know provenance from Germany and brought over here. They'd put uh, three big Webers on it, and we got it. Adam had never raced it, and I think... Uh, we had to do a lot of work on it, but it was fine. I mean, we 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 had to mess with the differential and some framing and different things. So we're just now getting the car settled. But I raced with a group called uh, Vintage Auto Racing Association, VARA, which has been around the West Coast for a long time. We were, we usually run at Willow Springs or at Button Willow or at uh, Pahrumpf at uh, Spring Mountain over there. And we'll race with SVRA sometimes, and I enjoy it. I'm... Uh, I'm not very good at it, you know. I've, I've I've got something in the back of my head that you get out at and turn nine at 
at uh, Willow Springs and you're going, you know, 120, you're thinking, it's 50 years old, Richard. It's 50 years old. You know, this car's 50 years old. You know, and, and, <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not, you got to remind yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, which I shouldn't do, but you know what? It's fun. Uh, it's fun to get out there with other guys. Uh, I go, you go to the meetings and you're thinking everyone's going to be a lot younger, but hell, the uh, driver's meeting, you know, it's 50, 60, 70 year old guys out there racing. And the big problem we have is getting younger people in. So we started letting, you know, the 320 coupes in and some other, we're creating classes for sort of 80 and 90 vintage cars now just to get the younger guys in and get them because that's a vintage car to them. You know, for us, uh, you know, hell, even the guy driving the pace car was on oxygen. He had, you know, you go there, he had the canyon up his nose and, you know. <laughs> it's, you know, it's just, that's funny. It's, it's I, gentleman racing, but it, you know, it's hell. It's a lot of fun, and uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with the weekend at the track. And uh, I've gotten my son involved. He runs a 2002 BMW coupe. It's a '73, and so that's been fun. And we bring my grandson out, and he'll he'll be good. It's a good time for him too. So it's you know, racing's a good a good thing. It's it's a good thing if you have a a family member, a daughter, or son that wants to do it. It's a good way to get together and, and mess around. Now, you you said like growing up in Kansas and working in the industry, you do. You seem like you're not afraid to get dirty. Are you wrenching on your cars and doing fabrications and things like that? Are you are you doing the, the work? I, I I do what I can, but uh, the guys that work in my shop, I start to work on something and, and they almost start crying. It's all that one said looked like a bear cub <laughs> with, with boxing gloves on. You know, I'm not probably as adept as I should be, you know, but yeah, she, you know, I, I love doing it, but I'm not very good at it. I, I know what every tool is for. I've got, I, hell, I've got more tools than, than, uh, than NASA. Okay. You know, I love tools and you know, I've got a tool for everything and I can, I know how to use them, but I'm not very good at using them. But I tell you what, it sure as hell a lot of fun to get out there and mess around with it. And then of course, I'm, what I'm really good at is, you know, you know, we've, and I've got a lot of good ideas, you know, they don't always seem to get out of the car, but I've got a lot of really good ideas. So. As long as you're having fun. Yeah. I mean, that's, all that matters. that's the main thing. Yeah. So, Hey, speaking of racing, you guys are coming up here June 24th. Moto America is at the Ridge. Right. That is one of the tracks on the series. Guys, um, I want to ask you about the different gonna, classes. Are you going to come out to it? I won't be in town. Uh, we've been talking to Daniel Pilling, though, and I'm str- things are still moving around. Yeah. So, is it 24th of June? Yeah, we'll be on the monkey run. Yeah, yeah. yeah so we're yes, we'll be in the middle. We'll be in the middle of Idaho on Honda monkeys. That's what we were talking about. Yeah, that yeah. sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah we have a good time. Um, but the different yeah, classes you guys have, because you guys you have explain that to me, but that's when, okay. All right, no, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'll send you the video. I yeah, really there's, will. There's a video. You, you will laugh. Yeah. It, it's as it's, it's ridiculous as it sounds. Okay. Trust us. Uh, I, I define, uh, just not to go offside, but I, I, we, were, we did a podcast about it when we came back, and I, defi- uh, I described it as Oompa Loompas riding motorcycles through the forest. Yeah. So yeah. that was basically <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sort of a circus act, right? Yeah. 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 My, minus the da 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 da
the first year was COVID, and we were able to put it on without um, without attendees. And so, you know, we 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 got to know the track a little bit. We the, we had to change the configuration of the front straight because uh, we were concerned that uh, with the speeds on the front straight, you would have a difficult time in the first corner. So we did that to adjust speeds a little bit. Um, it's a unique track. It's uh, setting is you know as you know is out in the Olympia Peninsula, Olympic Peninsula. It's um, uh, there are great operators out there. They're good good people. Uh, the track is is great. Um, you know, it's it's got a unique uh, corner on the back end of it. Uh, the last corner coming out, a lot of elevation change, sort of their corkscrew. And uh, last year we had a pretty good crowd, but you know that was during that heat wave that I couldn't believe you guys had. I mean, it was 110 degrees out there, and it was there wasn't yeah, that was miserable. There wasn't anything moving out there that time uh, last year. Uh, I was in Seattle. My daughter lives in Ballard. And um, so I was up there a, week, a day or two after, and I mean, I mean, nothing was walking around that town with those, that heat. So that wasn't a very good test. But this year, uh, sales are already pre-sales are good. Uh, we'll be there the 24th, and uh, it should be a good thing. We'll race. Uh, we're going to race to see the. Um, we'll have Junior Cup, which is 14 to 28 year olds on single cylinder 400 cc motorcycles usually it's a kawasaki we'll have the twins cup which is about a 750 cc motorcycle two cylinder bike it'll have 30 30 or 4 40 maybe um uh, participants in it and that's kind of a tuner class intermediate class we really like that uh, we have a super sport class little race there which is uh changed this year it's uh we have everything from 700 cc four-cylinder bikes up to 900 cc four-cylinders but we've we've leveled them and it's been a very exciting we ran them at daytona this year and it was, it was a wonderful race very close racing on those bikes um super bikes of course thousand cc highly modified production bikes stock 1000s and then we'll have the mini cup and the mini cup is is uh is off the off the chart it's um uh anywhere from 125 to 190 cc ovale motorcycle it's built in italy it's a full-on proper racing motorcycle and we have kids 8 to 13 on these things and they'll you know on the guard we run them on the cart track there but they'll hit speeds of 70 miles an hour these kids are dragging knees and dragging elbows <laughs> and they're going after it and so we'll, we run a championship we have like five or six rounds of that this year I'm not sure if we have the build train race going on there. We have uh, a, a setup with Royal Enfield. If you guys like bikes, I don't know if you, have you guys seen these Royal Enfield bikes. Have you looked at them? Yep. They're, they're yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah, knows them. They've really come on. I mean, the the quality. Of, they're like the AK-47s of motorcycles. I mean, you can drop them in the mud; they'll run anywhere. They're Indian built, but they're great bikes. Good styling. They put together a program for for women. And they give them the bikes. There's 15 of them. They they vet them uh, for their their racing uh, backgrounds or lack of. They give them the bikes. They convert them into race bikes. And then they train on them, and then they go out and race on them. And they're not the fastest things in the world, but I tell you what, they're a lot of fun to watch. Uh, the ladies are doing a great job in it, and it's been a lot of fun to 
to support that. So Dan's just pulling up photos. Those are awesome. Looking. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have a question for you. And I, and I, uh, you said you guys you, you modified the front straight. What did you do to it to slow people down? Are you are you putting a chicane in it? Yeah, we put a chicane in it. We've done that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We've done that there. We did it at a Pittsburgh pit race in Pittsburgh, and it's it's just a way to slow things down a bit so that we don't you know these most of the tracks in the United States are built for cars, and you know the the differentiation between a, a bike track and a car track is runoff basically so if you go to barber in uh alabama that's a that's a motorcycle track and there's plenty of runoff and it's designed for for the physics of a of a motorcycle if you go to other places you don't have that so you have to slow them down before they get to critical areas and pit race and daytona is another one um in the, the ridge Interesting. I I did not. I mean, I knew that tra certain tracks were built for things. Obviously. Yeah, I didn't think about it either. Yeah, good good point. Right. Okay. Um, there's some drama at Coda last time I heard about. Uh, actually, after the race, oh. you want to tell us about that? Was it everybody trying to leave? Because I had that drama leaving the F1 track. You couldn't <laughs> no, leave. No, no. <laughs> it's a safety thing issue. Oh. Yeah, it, it. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did have a little drama. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. Here's the issue. I think. Um, I don't know if just to, to get people kind of informed. Um, this year, we have a really fantastic racer, that a rider that's come over here from Europe. His name is uh, Danilo Petrucci. He's raced in MotoGP for a number of years. He raced at Dakar last year for the first time and won, actually won a stage, which is remarkable that anyone could their first time out. Um, he got injured there, but he came over to race with Ducati. And... That coincides with Ducati's investment in our series. Ducati um, sort of watched this for for a while. Kyle Wyman had a team, and and then uh, HBSK started a team, and they had some backing, and they brought uh, Larice Boz in, and, and Larice was here for a while, and then they brought Danello in. And Danello's it's kind of like like IndyCar when when oh uh, uh, Nigel Mansell came over, some of the other ones. You know, these they may not be in their prime, but they're still within the top three or four percent in the world. Danilo comes over, and um, there's kind of two aspects of this. One is that I think he he was a little surprised about how we race in the United States. I mean, that's everything from procedures to the tracks to the competition, and the competition's fierce. Um, it's very fierce. Well, the first two races, uh, first two events, uh, the the top Yamaha team had some mechanical problems or some DNS, and Danilo won the races. He did well. We had an issue. Um, he had a he had a DNF at at uh, Road Atlanta, and uh, then he I think he got maybe won the, the other race. Well, Jake Gagne then has been getting his bike up to speed. He won the first race at uh, VIR this last weekend, and he won the second race. Uh, in the first race, Danilo finished fourth behind uh, Matthew Skultz and I think uh, Cam Peterson. I think that's right. Yeah, I think Cam was third. So, you know, that's pretty that's pretty rough. I mean, all of a sudden you change. Now, new track for Danilo, got that. 
um, different conditions. Second race, he was vying for second, uh, and at the at the at the line, he uh, was probably half a bike length back from second place. They crossed the line. Matthew Skultz was ahead of him, and and next thing we know, Danlo's off the track, and VIR has got an unusual configuration where it has a kink uh, right about where the uh, the finish line is. It's a long straight. He went down. Uh, he uh, race control noticed that he got up fairly quickly, um, and that he walked to the side of the track. Others were finishing the race. He walked across the track. We had a, a person meet him there with a with a with a side by side, effectively, and they brought him to the infirmary, which was. Well, maybe 300 yards away. Now, the actual timeline we've been able to figure out was about 50 seconds till he got to the side of the track from the time he crossed the line. And it's been about three minutes till he got to the infirmary. Now, the issues at hand are that Danilo, I mean, when you cross the finish line there, you are booking it. You're doing 160, 170 miles an hour. So he is hauling. He is hauling the mail. And because it, the, the, the track fades off, you have to, it gets cut. The side of the, of the track comes up on you very quickly, and he went down. Um, we didn't have any cameras on that, that particular sequence. It was one of those things where we have cameras out there, but they're following other people and different things. So we don't have cameras or, or exactly what happened. But we do have camera angles around that and we can kind of piece the timing together well as anybody would expect you get out there and you get chucked off a motorcycle going 150 or 60 it's not pretty in under any circumstance and he got up fairly quickly but but to his perception okay which we're not trying to take anything away from he felt like he had been laying there for quite some time and there was no one there to attend to him so you know brought it up to, to oh. someone that's Italian and you know whatever I, he felt it he felt it himself that he, he had to put it on social media he sat there for two minutes no one took care of him and a lot of other things well of course when that happens you know you get the people on Danella's side you get the people on our side you get the people that, are, that don't know anything about racing weighing in so we put out a we put out a, a, re, a response that basically said here's where we see the facts now Looking back, I would say that did we do anything wrong? No, no. I, we got there as soon as we could. We noticed that he gets up. They're trained. The riders are trained if they're they need help to signal, put their hand up, but don't get up. Well, he got up really pretty quickly, so we didn't. That changes everything because you don't interrupt the, what's going on at the track. You don't deploy an ambulance on a hot track. You don't run people across the track when the people are finishing, you know, especially on a straightaway. You you adjust your response when, when that person gets up. If they can get up, they may be hurt, they may be dazed, but they're not necessarily dying at that point, right? So you, you adjust that. Well, what we could have done, we could have probably had somebody there quicker. I mean, we were there pretty quick, but we could, we could always do better. We can, we can always do better. Did we do anything wrong? No, but we didn't do enough right, if you will. Okay? 
we didn't, if you know what I mean. <laughs> we, we've not had any problems in this respect, but we've, we can always do a lot better. And that's what we're hoping to do. And we're, we've had some takeaway from this about, okay, how do we, this one turn is very unique in our series. How do we maybe adjust later on going to that place? There's some talk about that we've had problems on that straight before. We've had two people go off before. One was at the bottom of the straight in the wet. He comes onto the, the, the straightaway, loses the back end and goes off. Okay, that was at the bottom of the straight. Uh, Bobby Fong hydroplane on the straight, had nothing to do with the turn or any of the configurations, and he's, he went off there. So we haven't really had any bad experiences there. Uh, turn one has been different, but we have people there and, and ready to go. So there's a lot of kind of contributing factors to this. Can we do better? Absolutely, and we will. You know, but this is about continuous improvement. It's not necessarily about a, a, gro a grave error, if you will. And uh, we take, we take yeah. what happened to Danilo very seriously. We don't take any issue with you know, what his perceptions were because you don't know. You know you're down and, you, and you've just been through a 170-mile-an-hour knot hole. You know, it's hard to say your time has changed. I mean, think about falling. You've been in a car wreck before. It seems like time slows down. You know, there's all kinds of things. Yeah. So we're not taking anything away from Danilo. You know, but we, we took our time. We investigated the accident. It took us two days to come out with the right timeline. We can back it all up. Yeah. But we know we can do better. So that's kind of the way it works. But it's it's made for a lot of discussion, I can tell you that. You know, we've got people in Europe. Well, like you said, in, in any time you, you fall down, you crash, even as a kid or as an adult, it, time seems so slow. I, I mean, it, you know, you just never Absolutely. know. So, Absolutely. I mean, I, I think you, I, I think, you know, you look back on the timelines, I think everybody did the right thing. So. Yeah, no, I th yeah. thank you for such a thorough response. Yeah. I was just, uh, yeah, I didn't expect that. Just, well, yeah, that's really interesting. Way to cause drama, Dan. I know, I know, drama. man, my <laughs> bad. <laughs> if, you got, if you want to know what time it is, I've got to watch. I'll tell you how it's made. So, you know, that's the way it goes. Yep, that's exactly <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, what do you think about the uh, Suzuki leaving MotoGP? And uh, they're coming our way, I think, well, right? Is that yeah, the rumor? The, the, They've they've decided not to support MotoGP. They've they've announced they'll continue to support uh, our racing in the United States and, and other series. You know, it's 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 hard to say what impact they'll have long term. Um, you know, we're disappointed to see it. I know MotoGP is disappointed to see it, but I think it gets back to you know Suzuki's uh, different than the other Japanese manufacturers. They're not Kawasaki, which has a big heavy industries presence. They're not Yamaha that has a, a big, you know, diverse presence in musical instruments and 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 boating and other things. Um, you know, they're not uh, Honda that has airplanes and all everything. Suzuki's a is a smaller, different operation. You know, doesn't mean they're they're in bad shape or anything, but they have to deploy their resources like they, they need to. You know, we've seen all the Japanese kind of go away from the, the model of having strictly a factory team. To having a factory favored team that they support, so attack performance for Yamaha in our series, John Urich's M4 Suzuki series uh, uh, group. So they pick a favored person, but they are not a pure factory team, and they do the same thing in, in World Superbike and some of the others. So I think it's, it's a little bit of a trend, but I think too, um, I think they had to to focus resources 
and uh, it doesn't impact us directly yet and uh, that's good you know um, we're still a big market here so I think we'll get some support going going forward I don't see that changing over time but it's just a disappointment yeah disappointing to see them leave MotoGP I'm just still really glad they're in the US series uh, it's, it's interesting because people car people who aren't bike people at all, and we run into them all the time, they're like, Suzuki, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> maybe all they can think of is the little compact cars. I'm like, Su Suzuki makes awesome Jimmy. motorcycles. <laughs> Suzuki Jimmy? Or what, what, yeah. Well, well, the Hayabusa has its own cult following. And the, 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 you know, that, right, yeah. You know, the Hayabusa motor was the, was the foundation <laughs> motor for uh, the Radical, right? The Radical cars, race cars. <laughs> I mean, that, that, thing's yeah. a, that thing's a monster. And, um, Injectors or uh huh. I what what, what? Yeah. I uh, there's there, there's a famous story. Well, I, uh, I I I don't think my mom listens to the podcast. So I'll get away with it. But I bought a Hayabusa in Spokane many many years ago, and the guy had bought it and was deathly scared of it. And I showed up and paid my cash and laughed at him and said, "Yeah, sure." And ended up getting on the if you know the wash spoke was you know sorry Spokane going down to the Palouse. I got on the Palouse Highway and nailed it. And I was still 230 pounds, and that thing came up, and I jumped on the tank to get it to come down. And I turned around and I drove home. And I sold the bike. Like <laughs> I think I maybe put seven miles on it so yeah it's it's stupid fast and it's i mean it's a stupid fun bike but uh yeah i, w I did not have the skill and it was one of these things where i was like yeah i can totally i mean hayabusa i'm a big guy that that bike's not going to get out yeah. so i'm lucky to have all my skin but yeah how difficult could this be right yeah yeah i literally laughed at the guy i called him back and apologized i was like i'm selling the bike <laughs> so, you know little lesson from above yeah <laughs> so, yeah i had a jixer 1000 it was a great bike you like suzuki you've always liked suzuki's bike. i haven't had a lot of them i had a lot of hondas i've had a lot of everything honestly but uh, the, the jixer was a great bike was a i great. didn't even know i was a honda guy until i looked at my garage one day and i had two hondas i was like oh i guess i'm a honda guy <laughs> what's your favorite bike guys what do you like the best what do you guys what what favorite motor Ooh, that i've owned or just in general no, just that you've owned that you really that's enjoy. tough Ooh, that's a tough question um Probably I had a I had a RC fifty one and SP two so two thousand two RC fifty one and I had um, I partnered with a Kropovich. I was working at a bike shop at the time and I got one of the Superbike exhausts uh, like all titanium all the way back and now that exhaust if I had it is worth more than the bike um, <laughs> but you know I was young and stupid and broke and so I didn't have it very long but I didn't crash it I actually rode it a lot it was a fantastic bike and it, it wasn't it was terribly uncomfortable and it didn't get very good mileage and it was heavy. But the sound and the way I felt riding it, you just can't really compare it to any other bike I've had. And I've had Ducatis and other bikes too. And similar, I love twins because I love the sound and I love the feeling of a twin and the torque that low end just roll through torque. But that RC, man, it could just drop into a corner and it, all that weight went away as soon as you threw it over. And even with my really light bikes, my CBR 600 and my 1000 and my Jixxer and things like that, I still felt I wasn't. Uh, by the numbers but i felt faster on the rc51 and every time i got it it was exciting got on it it was exciting to ride and i still miss that bike it's one of the few bikes i would buy again if i found a really pristine example because i just i loved having it i loved the sound and it was a, a weird bike at the time so yeah i mean i i have had a lot of like smaller bikes like i said i mean i minus the hayabusa for a, a day and a half um <laughs> 
right now, my, I mean, the monkey will always be my favorite, uh, but I, right now I've got a CRF 450 RL and I'm kind of, cause I want to get, I want to get off the road and more on, on dirt. And th- this one kind of gets me there cause I don't have a trailer and <laughs> I need a bike that gets me there. Um, but right now my eyes are set on and I'm trying to think of it. I was trying to look it up. Uh, it's the triumph. It's basically the off-road scrambler, the, uh, oh, cool, yeah. the 1200. I mean, I would love, that's my, that's my dream right now. Um, I haven't yet to ride one. I'm, I'm going to go down and ride one, but yeah, I will say for sure though. And Nick and I talked about this. We have never had so much fun on a motorcycle as we've had on our monkeys, which sounds stupid because I've ridden so many bikes, but it's the experience. I laugh the entire time because I'm way too big for it. It has no power and you just throw it around. Like we were off-roading these things. We went off-road tires and suspension. Like there's a big rock in the trailer. Just, just pick it up <laughs> move around it. and I, we just laughed for three days straight covered in dust and mud and these stupid little bikes that cost us almost nothing and it was fantastic yeah. i love them well not anymore now they cost us a lot now they cost <laughs> us a lot but it's it that the, the monkeys are smiles for miles but like i said i have i have i think dan and i both looked at each other and we said you know i don't know if i would own a true sports bike again i don't know as much as i'm i'm 42 years old and my hand just wants to do this so much that i think I'm out of it. So I think I want something a little bit more. I'm less likely to be hit by a car off-road, too. For me, that's just where we live. I don't like riding around here because of the traffic and the people around here. I mean, we're in a tech city, and everybody's doing this more than other cities, trust me. like This is part of the driving experience. Your phone's right in front of you, and somebody's doing this. That's just how everybody drives. And I've... I stopped riding on the street because so many people merged into me all the time. And I didn't have any really bad accidents. I got bumped off the road here, here and there a few times and was able to recover. But, like... Man, it's just, it's worse. And so I love getting away from the city and riding. And that's why I would love another sport bike. But I would, I would be like, I'm going to trailer it to over the mountains and then go and ride. I think something I've been noticing and uh, generally, and, and this is sports bikes, this is dual sports. Everybody's getting their bi- their phones and their, their big screens and they're putting them up there. And the bikes are getting, I mean, I'm watching people on bikes start to drift out of lanes <laughs> and stuff. Like, and I'm a person, I put my, I put my, you know, I've got my head, my headset in my, my helmet. I put my phone in my pocket just because if my phone is up on the bars, like I literally took that mount off my bike because I kept looking down at my phone and it was becoming unsafe. And so I think that's part of the problem. Yeah. And it took away from the fun. Like, the, like you said, I want to get out there. I want to have fun. I want to, I want to do it safely. Um, and, and I'm noticing the older I get, the more I go out padded up like the Michelin man, but I'm safe. <laughs> so <laughs> what about you? What's your favorite bike you've had or anything well, you know, or anything? My first bike was a, was a mini bike. It was a little taco. Okay. A mini bike. And it was mm-hmm. built by Steen and, no shocks on it. it. Had a two and a half power uh, Briggs and Stratton motor on it, and you know we used to ride those things in packs around around town, around our neighborhood. We have <laughs> empty lots, and you go right around. And the police would come about. Uh, you, you get about a good hour, and the police would show up, and then haul you, you know, get you to leave. <laughs> and so you know, it's that kind of. I, that's where I grew up. That was the first thing. But and I think you'll find that most people you talk to, you say, "How'd you get started well, on a mini bike?" You know, so. That's one thing. I think, Mini bike. I think for, for just fun bikes, well, one, I, I kind of divide it in two groups. I have a 66 Velocet uh, Thruxton. All right. And you get on this thing, it's got, the Kickstarter is about six inches long. Okay. It's a joke. And it's it's there to move a 500cc single piston up and down. And you're either going to break your leg with it or, or you know, it's just a joke. Yeah, you know, I asked somebody how to start one of these every time. He said, "Live on a hill." Okay, that's that's his answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he's got this big piston going up and down, 
it's got a magneto on it it's got a okay so then you look at the handlebars are clip on and it's got a, an advance uh, a, a spark advance it's got a choke it's got a uh, compression release uh, a clutch lever and a brake lever on the other side and a throttle so you've got more controls than 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 Wilbur Wright had, you know, and it's like, but the part about it is, is getting it to run right. You know, you get going on, you, you, you retard the spark, you, you start it, you get it going, and then you get it just right, and then you advance the spark rate. To me, that's a lot of fun because it's a it's a highly involved type of thing, and it's just it's just the pride of being able to, to ride it, and it's an old bike in it. The thump of a single, big single, like there's nothing yeah. cooler. It's got the big fishtail exhaust on it, you know. And it's an original bike, and that's fun. And it's got a, it's got a Amel carburetor. It's a GP car, carburetor. There's no, there's no uh, uh, idle circuit on it. So it's like shooting gasoline at, at the at the intake, you know. It's just, it's just, it's just there to. It's just, it's a racing carburetor. It's so it, it takes. There's some art to it, you know. That's that's fun. The other bike that I've got is my newest one. I'm just, just nuts about it. It's a uh, Terry Vance built it for me, Vance and Hines. I was at a AFT race, and I was looking yeah. at their, their Super Twins bike, and I'm going, shit, that's good looking. I, you know, I said, could you build one for me? And he goes, well, yeah, what are you going to do with it? I said, well, I want, I want you to put a light on it and a tail light on it and a kickstand. And he goes... <laughs> Really? Yeah, yeah. Come on. So that's what he did. He built. So it's a 750, and that thing is a hoot. You know, it does. And people say, "Is it street legal?" I go, "Sure. It's got a license plate and a light on it." You know? and ish. Have, yeah, uh, ish. Yeah, ish. Yeah. But you know, there's no mirrors. The handlebars are just straight across. It's you put a front brake on it too. That's the other thing. And I got Keith McCarty over at uh, Yamaha Racing to do the same thing with one of their 750s, too. So I've got I now got I got to get Roland Sands or somebody to build one that's an Indian. But but these are just basically full-on race bikes that uh, I get to ride on the street. So it's pretty cool, you know. And they sound great. You can hear me coming, and I can be at, I can be out out in the country here in about 30 seconds from where I live. And it looks just like that bike there, except behind the license plates uh, as a light, you know, and they're cool. They're a lot of fun. She's are light, you know, they're 330, 40 pounds and they 100 horsepower. And it's just, you know, you, you can't go very far in them because the tanks are small, but the seats aren't any bigger. So it all kind of matches that way. You can go, you can ride it for about half an hour and you're done. But that's fun. I mean, for me, that's, I'm not a big touring guy. I just like to ride them, go to lunch on them, go run an errand on them. I live in a place that I can do that, so it's great. And they're modern. That process you're talking yeah. about of getting it started, I love that. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think that's, I mean, I, I, I think that's why I've, I've, I've been inclined. I've always wanted it, and I don't know if I'll ever have the money to do it, but like a classic Indian. Like, I mean, kickstart the idea, yeah, kickstart. Well, yeah. I'd like to keep my legs. I mean, I, I you know, stand but, on the other, the ones that kick it, sand the, to kick it. Yeah. But the process of that, of like, you know, the retarding yeah. the spark. Have you ever seen Gordon McCall? I asked him about the time he pushed me on the thing trying to jump start it, uh, bump start it. I, I think we just about killed him because my fat <laughs> ass, you know, you're too, you're too, you're too, <laughs> about 270, right? And, he pushed me on the thing. Still talking, you know. I think it's. I think it's very tacky that he talks and brings it up. But that's okay. <laughs> what do you What do you think about electric motorcycles? Have you ever ridden one? 
Have you ever? Yeah, I have a couple times actually. I think there's. I think if I was a cannonball, that's the way I would. It would be like because you can't hear anything. There's no frame of reference. It's, it's yep. just out by your <laughs> head, right? And you're going along. You're and smooth, yep. and you're going. I feel like a cannonball. You know, there's nothing around me. You know, and then you look down. You're going 90 miles there, and you're going, "Well, hell, this thing's dangerous." You know, it's just like. Yeah. And so you start yeah. off riding the thing. You're kind of going, "Okay, that's pretty cool." And you ride up next to somebody, and they're looking at you. And you're not making any noise. You're going, "Okay," but what I, what you find out you end up doing. <laughs> Is over time, it's it's not about how fast you can go go or how you can accelerate. It's about how long you can make it last, right? With a charge. So your three generation, you're kind of you're kind of going slower and faster, and you're kind of you know gliding and trying to figure out how I can get just another ten miles out of this thing. Because because that's that's to me is kind of the fun part about it is how you how you can operate it. But I think you know they've got a place. We had a big discussion this weekend with the. Uh, the guy that uh, distributes in Ingenia is that the name of the, the bike that it's it's that's part of Formula E uh, or Moto Moto E. Oh yeah, uh, I can't think off the top of my head. I can picture it. Uh, anyway, I know who you're talking about. Very yeah. capable motorcycle. Something. You know they they've been racing. Ducati's going to take their place at MotoGP, but but you know you start talking about it, and I think. Those bikes, you know, people say, well, can you convert internal combustion people over to an electric bike? I kind of think that's a fool's errand. Okay. But I think where, where the market's going to come for those bikes is a whole different place. And it starts with uh, off-road bicycles. Right? Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you've seen the, you've seen the evolution of bicycles from, from being off-road bikes to being electrically assisted bikes to these Zugos now are just taking over. I don't know in Laguna Beach, California. I mean, there's packs of these kids on these things, you know, that running around on them. But I think that's the that's the the market eventually for for these types of motorcycles. You know, are ones that are that are going to uh, be found in the people that are taking uh, the evolution of bicycles into electric electrified bicycles more than trying to convert the internal combustion guys back. And there's, that's a big market, and and you know what? It's a God love it all. I mean, it's great. So that's you know, no fun to watch. Did, did Harley stop making that electric bike that they did long way up on? Did they? Are they still making that? Uh, it dropped by ten grand, and they had to halt production for two months because oh. of supply and chain issues. Yeah, okay. but it's still going. Hmm. It's actually sold yeah, out. Spun it off too. I think. I think it's becoming more and more its own entity. But you know, Harley. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so okay. Harley bought Stasics. I don't know if you know Stasics. It's a little electrified uh, bicycle as well for kids. So they're 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 doing whatever they can. You know that that company. We're racing baggers now. I don't know if you've heard about the bagger racing we've been doing. And it's that's cool. Yeah, very cool. You know, <laughs> it's 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 one of those things. that's like a, it's like a train wreck, right? Shouldn't happen. Yeah, you can't look, you can't look away. <laughs> But you got to watch it. Yeah. It's over. Right. And you know, I've, I've got another way to say it, but it's very politically incorrect. But anyway, the point is, uh, you take these baggers out there and what they're doing, and it's created a whole new category for Harley and for Indian 
they put a tremendous amount of money on it. But the, the new management at Harley in the last two years, the fellow that used to run Puma has now come over to run Harley. And he's really focused on how to get the demographic pushed down and, and what to do. It's, it's amazing to see his impact. He brought Jim Farley, who's the chairman of Ford, on the board of Harley as well. I think that's having a big impact. And they're not only now a, a, a lifestyle brand, but they're coming back into the technology that they've, they've kind of forgotten about for the last 30 years. And they're starting to try to catch up now. But I think the bagger racing has done a lot to improve their, their manufacturing and their design. And we're kind of proud of that. I mean, some of those big Harleys, I've had a chance to ride a couple mm -hmm. of them, some friends of mine. I mean, and there is nothing more comfortable than getting out there and you've got your stereo and your, you know, <laughs> it's everything, you know, and it, there's something comfortable to it. But the true Harley guys are never going to go, you know what I need? <laughs> I need to get rid of my knuckle, my panhead, and get an electric bike. That's just never going to happen. But watching that baggy racing is by far, you're right, it's a train wreck and you're waiting for something to happen. And it's, I mean, yeah. It's fun. It's 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 a good reminder that motorcycle racing is supposed to be fun. I yeah. love watching it. I don't <laughs> so. think you really realize what they've yeah. done. We've what we found we had to do is not treat it as a sideshow. We treat it as a real class with real technology and real no. technical um, drive. Right. So these guys were doing 170 miles an hour on the banks of Daytona this year. Wow. I didn't know it was that fast. Like, Do, I, I do they need new seats to sit around their testicles? I mean, <laughs> yeah, Jesus. I, I never thought it was a joke because I've seen how fast they are, but I didn't think well, it was that fast. Seventy-one <laughs> miles an hour on the banks of Daytona. You, you, that's a lot of stuff flapping in the breeze, boys. And I'll tell you what, Harley just uh, put just came to Wichita about uh, two weeks ago and put it in the in the um, in the wind tunnel here at the aeronautical area. And, I mean, they're going full in on this thing. And, you know, you, you kind of laugh about it, but, hell, it's a, it's a real class now. It's attracted a whole new group to our racing. And they're, 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 what the funny thing about it is they appreciate the sport bikes. And the sport bikes now, that group appreciates the Harleys. And it's really kind of drawn the crowd together a little bit. So now you're going to, when you go to the races, you're going to see a wider variety of people you've ever seen. You know, and it's a good family deal, and it's a lot of fun. And they make noise. I mean, God, they're loud, you know. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Uh, uh, the yeah. Indian guys, you know, they're they're really kind of steely-eyed on this thing, too. And they, you know, they have a clean sheet of paper design for that bike. It's an overhead cam, multiple valve bike, and that, that engine is, a, is like, is a Yamaha, <laughs> you know, compared to the Harley, which is like a, a dinosaur. The Harleys yeah. get, <coughs> they get about, let's see, about uh, 131 versus 108. So that's what a difference of, how many different inches? Um, two, it's about 20, 20, 20 inches displacement. The push rod versus over over yeah. cam. And, uh, but the balance, the bike's balance, you know, and they're both racing about the same. One's oil-cooled and air-cooled. The other one's water-cooled. So they're they're hitting about the same performance standard. You know, the, the Harleys get having a little harder time getting there, but they're doing it. So and the brakes look like... I'm always amazed what they can push out of those fishrod yeah, motors. 
Yeah. But, you know, they, they had trouble. I mean, they had oiling issues. They had bottoming issues. They had all kinds of things. But it, they had to add finning to them. They've, they've raised the foot pegs uh, to get clearance. They've raised the ride heights on the bike. Yeah, they, they flat haul. In fact, at, at, at Atlanta, the top qualifying a bagger would have would have qualified probably 12th or 13th on the grid for Superbike. Dang. Okay, that's fast. <laughs> that's really cool. Yeah. I did not know that. That's fun. I just... I I can watch that all day. I mean, I mean, any watching any motorcycle race is great, but watching those guys like throw around those bikes is just incredible. Oh, so. I'll, I'll, all right. Well, uh, we need to wrap this yeah, up. One last motor- go go ahead. Motor- sorry, racing is the most exciting race in the world because the, the the equation is as much the rider as it is the bike, right? And I'll just leave it leave, leave it at Agreed. that. And invite anybody that wants to see really see something to come out. And anybody that really wants to watch it on TV, we're on Fox 2, MAV-TV. We have uh, highlights during the week afterwards. We have our Pressure to Ride show. We're on YouTube. There's a lot of places you can watch us. We have a streaming service, Moto America Live Plus. But I tell you what, we try to get it out as, as far as we can. We're evangelists for this thing. And it's been a lot of fun. And uh, thank you guys for giving us a chance to talk about it tonight. Absolutely, and and for our you know Pacific Northwest Avance members, obviously, like we said, June twenty third or twenty fourth, twenty fourth, they're going to be up here at the Ridge. Uh, go out and see it. Like I think that's going to be amazing. So yeah, for our yeah. California crew, go visit the Peterson if you haven't. Absolutely, an amazing place yeah, to visit. We'll yeah. so. uh, Richard, we really appreciate you, you taking Laguna Seca the, uh, two weeks after that uh, as well. And uh, come on out. The paddock's open. You can see all the riders and meet them. It's a great time. Cool. Well, we really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. We know you're busy. Uh, it was a pleasure to meet you. Uh, we look forward to talking to you again in the future. I hope so. I hope we see you at the races, actually. Oh, absolutely. Before we yeah. sign off, uh, where should people go? Do you have a website you can plug or anything that we want to direct people to? For MotoAmerica.com has it all. It's all right there. Okay. okay. All right. We'll send it there. I'll make sure the link is on the page, everybody. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you very much, Richard. Uh, for this episode of the Avance Podcast, I'm Nick. I'm Dan, and don't just get there. Enjoy the drive. Sorry about the lag. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)